So what I'd like to do today is to tell you a little bit about the development of the central nervous system and how stem cells are absolutely fundamental building blocks in how our brains develop and how we can use that information to harness the latent and potential power of stem cells for brain therapeutics. And what you see over here uh, in this movie from my laboratory's work are cells that are, are essentially young nerve cells that are born in the adult organism that are migrating from where they were born and next to the lateral ventricle to their destination, which is the olfactory bulb. And part of what I'll tell you during this talk is the whole concept of adult neurogenesis, or the birth of new nerve cells in the adult central nervous system, which was really a big paradigm shift in the field of developmental neurobiology that essentially was discovered about 50 years ago, wasn't believed for quite a number of decades, and then was rediscovered about 20 years ago. What you see here are these same cells that have been cultured, that have been extracted from the brain, and that have been placed in an in vitro culture system, and that have been exposed to various chemicals to induce them to change and to turn into adult cells that satisfy the criteria of nerve cells and the two major support cells of the brain, astrocytes and oligodendrocytes. So the three different colors, white, green, and red, are essentially fluorescent markers that we've used to label these specific types of brain cells that these, oops, that these stem cells give rise to. And this is a convenient system for actually asking whether the cells that we study are stem cells. Now, I'd like to frame the talk around this schematic, which was generated by a fellow named Waddington, who was at, a, <clears throat> at Cambridge uh, quite a number of years ago. But it was, it was brilliant in terms of its simplicity and its explanatory power. And what you have here is essentially a ball rolling downhill. And as it rolls downhill, it comes across a series of ridges. And it tends to hit the ridges sort of right on the edge of the ridge. And at that point, it's almost a stochastic, almost a random decision whether it would go to the left and to the right. Similarly, a stem cell, a young embryonic stem cell, as it's developing, it will come to one of these bifurcating decision points and have to decide whether to become a skin cell or a nervous system cell. And that process of decision making and of left or right decisions occurs over and over and over as the ball rolls down the hill or as the stem cells develop. And also inherent in this model is the concept that as the cells make further and further decisions, they become more and more specialized. Now, this is very interesting because people often say, well, stem cells are cells that can turn into anything in the body. That's actually incorrect. A stem cell can't turn into anything in the body, any kind of cell in the body. What a stem cell does is it give rise, gives rise to other cells, which in turn gives rise, give rise to even more cells, and those progeny turn into the other cells of the body. So if a stem cell gives rise to a differentiated cell, then by definition it's not a stem cell anymore, because what stem cells do is they give rise to more of themselves and to other kinds of progeny. Now, the other really beautiful aspect of Waddington's epigenetic landscape model of stem cell um, progression is that, similar to the concept of gravity allowing the ball to roll downhill and never ever allowing it to roll back uphill, development is generally a unidirectional process. Development goes in one direction, from the embryo to the adult. We don't spontaneously de-differentiate. I mean, sometimes we regress psychologically, but our cells tend not to move backwards as much as our brain function does sometimes. Now, this has actually been experimentally challenged, and science is really fascinating when dogmas are challenged. Adult neurogenesis is a great example of a dogma being cha challenged, and the reversal of this unidirectional progression of stem cells from the embryo to the adult has been experimentally challenged with two major techniques, and I'll tell you about one of them later on in the talk. One of the techniques is uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer, or SCNT. And that's essentially the technology that was in part developed here at Oxford. And then it was uh, the technology that gave rise to, to cloning of Dolly the sheep. And it showed that you can take an, a, a nucleus from an adult cell and put it into a young, very early cell that has had its nucleus removed and show that that adult nucleus is capable of giving rise to the entire organism. So that essentially has moved the clock backwards because you're taking an adult nucleus and forcing it to revert to an embryonic-like state. The other technology is more recent and it's absolutely fascinating. It's called IPS technology, induced pluripotent stem cell technology. And in that technology, you introduce 
uh, certain factors into the stems, into adult cells, and cause them to turn backwards into embryonic-like stem cells. Now that's moving backwards. What about moving over one of these ridges? What if you want a skin cell to turn into a nervous system cell, into a nerve cell? That's much more rare, and it turns out it's much more difficult to achieve, but there are a small handful of really good, bona fide, reproducible results by now that show that this is also possible, and I believe this is one of the waves of the future. It's incredibly interesting. So I couldn't give this talk in this, what I think is probably the most beautiful room, not just in, in Oxford, but in, in Europe and the world, uh, and not say anything about the history of neuroscience and, and stem cells um, at Oxford. And I'll start by mentioning Thomas Willis. So are any of you familiar with the name Thomas Willis? I'm curious. Okay, a small handful. So Thomas Willis, many people consider to be really the, the godfather of clinical neurobiology. And what he did is he essentially learned how to preserve human brain tissue and alcohol. And thereby, he developed techniques that allowed him to, to process and to examine the neuroanatomy of the human brain in great detail. Great detail. Now, he also became famous because he resuscitated a poor woman called Anne Green. Anne Green had been uh, raped and had therefore, well, not therefore, but unfortunately, after that, been accused of witchcraft and all sorts of heinous uh, sins and crimes and was hanged. The hanging did not go well, despite the fact that her relatives were hanging on her ankles to make sure that it did. They thought that the hanging was successful. They thought she was dead. And in those days, the professor of anatomy at Oxford got the corpses of all hanged criminals uh, that were within, I think, a couple of miles of the center of town. Willis got her body. And what they did in those days to actually ascertain that the person really was dead was to pound on their chest. So in a sense, perform CPR. She wasn't completely dead, and she woke up and everybody thought this was a fantastic miracle, that he resuscitated a dead person. And he gr gained great notoriety and fame because of this, and this in, in part allowed him to continue these very important seminal, observa seminal observations of uh, clinical neuroscience. And this is all described very well in an excellent book by Carl Zimmer called Soul Made Flesh. Now, Willis described what's called the circle of Willis, which is this uh, brain anastomosis whereby the circulatory system at the base of the brain is connecting one side to the other. And this is a very interesting anatomical feature that actually protects one side of the brain when the other side has a blockage in it. And we'll get back to that in terms of some of the research that I do here in collaboration with Alistair Buchan. This, these are some of his first edition books that um, were, were presented in, in a history of neuroscience lecture here at Oxford, and this is my screensaver now on my computer. So some of you may have seen this blue plaque, uh, actually it's not a blue plaque, but it's a plaque uh, down on the high street that describes Robert Boyle and Robert Hooke. So Boyle, as, as we all know, uh, 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 made fundamental discoveries and came up with Boyle's law that has to do with the relationship between volume and pressure of gases. And his assistant was Robert Hooke, who was a polymath and who actually contributed probably more to the founding of the Royal Society than any single person because he made the equipment necessary to do the experiments. And one of the things that Robert Hooke did amazingly well was to make microscopes, such as is shown here. And in the use of these early microscopes, and similar to ones made by Leeuwenhoek uh, at, at a similar time, he wrote this uh, uh, incredible book called Micrographia, which really opened up the world of microscopy to the public at large. People were lining up in London to buy this book. And he used uh, the microscope to generate images such as this and to make beautiful, exquisite drawings about the anatomy of creatures like the flea. I think he was interested in the flea because he was also interested in the mechanical property of springs. Anyway, it's just to point out that the invention of the microscope and the use of the microscope by Hooke and, and other contemporaries was absolutely essential in sorting out the functional anatomy of the central nervous system. So this is a drawing of some of the nerve cells in the brain, and these little black cells here are called microglial cells. There are a different functional class of cells in the brain that are essentially related to the immune system. And this is a more modern uh, drawing with what's called a cajal preparation. Uh, so, uh, Ramoni Cajal, or sorry, a Golgi preparation, and, and this was used by a Spanish neuroanatomist called Ramoni Cajal to show the different types of neurons and their incredibly intricate interconnectivity within the brain. I'd also like to point out in this slide that this type of information just starts to scratch the surface of the incredible complexity of the brain. 
So we know that the adult brain has about 10 to the 11, 10 to the power 11 cells in it, and each of those cells has thousands to tens of thousands of synapses or connections with the other cells in the brain. And so it's an incredible, incredibly complicated engineering feat to build the brain, and it's also an incredibly complica complicated therapeutic feat to try to repair the brain. And part of the reason it's so complicated, in addition to the connectivity and the sheer numbers of cells, is that there are many different types of cells within the brain. And if you want to replace bra uh, brain cells, you have to replace them with the right cells. Excuse me. So <clears throat> this idea that we have to understand anatomy to understand function has really continued to this day. And in, in an amazing technical tour de force a number of years ago, Levey and Lichtman at Harvard developed a mouse called the Brainbow Mouse, which individually labels nerve cells or neurons in the brain. And what you see in this rotating movies are a movie is a series of individual, <coughs> excuse me, individually labeled cells that have different combinations of fluorescent molecules in them that allow you with a very uh, advanced microscope to distinguish one cell from the other. And it's an example of the kind of new technologies that we're using that are really in this sweep of microscopy and functional neuroanatomy that was in large part started by Hook and by, Will and by Willis. <coughs> Excuse me. So just a word about um, the Oxford Stem Cells Institute. My, my laboratory really spans uh, work across from developmental neurobiology to models of neurological illness and, and stem cells in the brain. And the Oxford Stem Cells Institute um, was essentially funded by the Martin School. So James Martin was one of the most instru instrumental individuals in the development of the internet. He became a fabulously wealthy man and he started what's now called the Martin School here at Oxford. And they're futurologists and it's essentially a think tank and a series of um, consortia of scholars who are centered around themes that are meant to impact and are meant to address some of the greatest challenges in the 21st century like climate change, energy sources, et cetera, et cetera. And the OSCE, the Oxford Stem Cells Institute, is the newest amongst these. And we have many different uh, functions and ideas, but one of them is to promote Oxford as a center of excellence in stem cell biology and to provide collaboration between laboratories through seed funding. So I've benefited from some of this seed funding, and it's absolutely essential to get money into laboratories to do this, what's very expensive work, actually, and to foster collaboration between the excellent um, scientists that we have here. And the idea also is to use some of that seed funding to leverage further funding from uh, larger institutes like the MRC or the NIH in the States for further stem cell research. And the OSCE also supports early careers in stem cell biology through studentships, bursaries, and also now um, a couple of sort of more advanced uh, uh, pots of money for postdoctoral fellows to come in and begin their, their lives as young scientists at Oxford studying stem cells. We also strive to increase the public understanding of science, and we're also in part responsible for advising the government on a variety of policy issues in stem cell research. And finally, we're very interested in developing interdisciplinary collaborations with other institutes within the Martin School as well as across Oxford. And all of this really falls under the rubric of networking at a local, national, and international levels. So just a little blurb about the Oxford Stem Cell Institute. If anybody's interested in it, there's really an excellent website that describes it in more detail. Okay, so let's switch gears now and get really into the meat of the talk and talk a little bit about stem cells during embryogenesis. So shown here is a very, very, very early stem cell. So this is essentially a fertilized egg. This is one single cell that has just been fertilized by a sperm cell. That is the most stem-like of all the stem cells. That's a totipotent stem cell because that individual cell will give rise to progeny which will give rise to all of the cells in the body. The cell starts to divide quite rapidly and you can see a small ball of cells here from a couple of rounds of division. And then very rapidly you have the development of a small embryo. You can see these little striated structures here which are called somites which will turn into the ribs in the iterated muscular pattern that we all have in our thorax. And I'd like to point out that during development of the embryo the brain and the heart are amongst the first organs to develop. They develop very, very rapidly. And then this is an image uh, 
of, of a human embryo taken um, uh, quite a few months after this stage of development. And it's just to point out that it's really quite miraculous and mysterious how one single cell can actually give rise to this en entire embryo and to all the different developing uh, components of the embryo. Now this shows a very early, what's called blastula stage of embryogenesis, and the yellow cells depicted here are the cells which will essentially give rise to the entire organism. How do we know these things? How do we study embryogenesis, and how do we study stem cells? Well, in large part, it's through studying simpler organisms, like the zebrafish, like the roundworm C. elegans, and I thought that I would show you a movie of very early zebrafish development. So here you have two cells, and if you watch it carefully, you'll see that there's a series of proliferative events that occur, and that within a, about a day or so, this is super sped up, it won't take a whole day to show it, you have the development of a recognizable zebrafish embryo, and it's to show you the great complexity of cell divisions and morphogenetic movements, the, the idea that you have the formation of shape during embryogenesis. By now, you can start to see the head of the animal, you'll see some somites appearing here, there's the tail, there's the beginning of the brain, and essentially you have the, the rudimentary fish right there, and you can use it as a beautiful system to study stem cells. Many, many other examples of that across the literature. And we use these animals in part to discover what molecules regulate these decisions that I refer to in the first or in the second slide in the Waddington epigenetic landscape. Because although I said that they were random, they are in part influenced by the molecular interior of the cells, by the kinds of proteins that are expressed during the cells, during the, those different phases of development. And these are examples of typical molecules like SOX2 and OCT4 and PAX5. Most of these, for the, the biologists amongst you, are transcription factors. They essentially regulate and control gene expression of other genes. Now, this is probably the most important slide in the whole talk because it's, it essentially tells you what a stem cell is. And there are actually a lot of misconceptions in, in the literature and in the lay literature about what stem cells are. But essentially, a stem cell is a cell that's able to self-renew indefinitely. It gives rise to more stem cells. One of the so-called daughter cells of a stem cell has to be a stem cell for that first mother cell to be called a stem cell. And it's also a cell that's multipotent, that's able to give rise through intermediate progeny to a variety of different kinds of cells. And we show this concept of self-renewal and multipotency through these kinds of lineage trees shown here, where an individual stem cell divides, gives rise to one of itself, and then to a different kind of cell, and these guys go on to make different cells further down the line. Now, this is very interesting, but it's, it's really a sort of a behavioral definition, and it forces you to assign these cells retrospectively into the stem cell category. And there are some markers and some features of stem cells that allow you to prospectively isolate them and to study them before they've gone through these processes. But fundamentally, you have to show these behaviors to show that it's a stem cell. Now, another major way that we understand all of this is not by directly looking at animals, but by using these cells in cell culture. And essentially, we can uh, grow these stem cells, pluripotent stem cells, in a dish. We isolate them from the blastocyst stage embryo, such as I, sh as I showed you in those yellow cells a few slides ago, culture them in the presence of various factors, and uh, 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 force the cells to, to differentiate into different kinds of cells, like blood cells, cardiac muscle cells, or nerve cells. Now, what about embryonic cells? Uh, in the brain and in the adult brain. Well, again, I think this is one of the most remarkable aspects of the development of the nervous system is that th this small field of cells in the very early embryo, which is known to give rise to the entire uh, human brain and not just the cerebral cortex shown here, but everything. And I show you this dorsal view, this top view of the brain to indicate again how functionally and anatomically complex the brain is. And this cross-section, taken at about this level, shows how the different parts of the brain are wired up to each other. This black stain essentially stains for the connections between the different functional parts of the brain. And so one of the great mysteries of developmental neurobiology is how do stem cells go from here to here? Now, I mentioned before that one of the tasks in the development of the central nervous system is to generate the right types of cells. 
And I mentioned nerve cells several times already, and I think I alluded to the support cells, which are called glia cells. Glia essentially means glue. And the two types of glial cells found in the brain are oligodendrocytes and astrocytes. Oligodendrocytes are the cells that die in multiple sclerosis, and they essentially serve to speed up the functional connectivity between nerve cells. And astrocytes now are known to have a wide variety of different functions, but they're very important in traumatic brain injury and a variety of different kinds of brain diseases because they essentially form the scar tissue after the brain is injured. Now, very interestingly, they've also been discovered to be essentially one of the major stem cells, if not the major stem cell of the, de of the developing and of the adult brain. So we have three types of cells in the brain, neurons, oligodendrocytes, and astrocytes. These are some neurons that I drew when I was a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Medical School, and it's just to show the great morphological complexity of a handful of different types of neurons that you find in the chicken forebrain during embryogenesis. Now, at the very earliest stages of brain development, the brain is essentially a flat sheet of tissue. And that's shown here in this scanning electron micrograph, where you have one single cell layer flat epithelial-like tissue. And what happens is this process of neurulation, whereby this flat sheet of tissue curls up like this and fuses to form a tube. So our very early developing brains are essentially glorified tubes, one cell layer thick. And this is a scanning electron micrograph that I've pseudo-colored brown to show you this developing central nervous system right before this fusion occurs. And if the fusion doesn't occur, you get the very tragic occurrence of spina bifida. Almost all of the cells that you see in this image and almost all the cells you see in this, this image are essentially stem cells. And so it gives us a convenient inroad into studying the behavior of these cells in these very, very early embryos. Now, this seems like a complicated slide, but it actually recaps some of the things that I've been mentioning to you. This is what's called the lineage tree of stem cell development. And up here, you have a very early, very pluripotent or plastic stem cell that can give rise through time to a large variety of different kinds of cells through self-renewal and multipotency. And each of these are a series of divisions, and you can see that early on, these are what are called symmetric divisions. This is exponential expansion of the numbers of cells in the developing brain. Very rapidly, over a short period of time, you've generated a large percentage of the incredibly huge number of cells we all end up with. Then as development progresses, you have these ends popping out. These are ends for neurons. So neurons are born first, and then astrocytes and oligodendrocytes are born later during embryogenesis oligodendrocytes being the last ones. And this image here shows one of these early neurons during very, very early embryogenesis crawling up a little fiber of a radial glial cell and reaching the different parts of the cerebral cortex. So this is the same part of the brain that I showed you in the previous slide that was very convoluted. It's the exterior most part of the brain. It's the, it's the evolutionarily most advanced part of our brains. And it's characterized by these distinctive layers that have different types of neurons in them and then have different functions. And that's shown in more detail here where we've taken small little columns of tissue from the cerebral cortex and are showing it at different stages of development. This is a ver very early 8.5-day-old uh, rodent embryo. It's just a one-cell layer thick piece of tissue. It's that flat neuroepithelium that I referred to in, uh, a few slides ago. And gradually, as development progresses, this is embryonic day 10, embryonic day 12, the cortex thi thickens, and you have the migration of these cells, which are born down here via stem cells, into the upper layers of the cortex. And so gradually, over time, different types of neurons are born, and they migrate to different parts and different layers within the cerebral cortex. Now, I'd like to switch gears and tell you a little bit about this rediscovery of adult neurogenesis. So it was thought that the processes that I've just shown you in the previous two slides essentially are finished when the mammalian organism is born. It was known that simpler organisms like, well, simpler, relatively simpler organisms like reptiles and amphibia actually can support adult neurogenesis. If you scoop half of a lizard's brain out, or a lizard, half, of, half of the brain of a lizard out, it will regrow. Songbirds exhibit neurogenesis during song learning behaviors in the spring and when they first learn a song from their father. It's absolutely remarkable. That's dependent on new neurons being born in their brains. But it was thought that this was not possible in mammals. 
It was thought if you lose neurons for any reason, as even as a young adult uh, or even as a child, you cannot regrow them. And Joe Altman, and actually even before Joe Altman, people like Smart, and I believe his first initials were I am Smart, uh, <laughs> d discovered through tritiated thymidine labeling of, of mitotic or proliferating cells. So this was a radioactive analog of part of DNA that was incorporated into the cell when the cell was going through the cell cycle. So it was essentially a way of tagging dividing cells in the adult brain. And Smart and Altman found a couple of small regions of the brain, as is shown here with these little red dots, where you could find these labeled mitotic cells. And nobody knew what they were. But people thought, well, those are probably giving rise to the support cells of the brain, to glial cells. So Joe Altman came along and he published this amazing study that uh, actually set the whole stage for this enormous field of adult neurogenesis now and described that these cells are born next to the lateral ventricles and they migrate to the olfactory bulb, a part of the brain that's responsible for the sense of smell. Now, at the same time, Altman and Smart and others noticed that there was one other part of the brain that exhibits this proliferation in adult generation of nerve cells, and that's the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus. So this is the hippocampus here. It's a very distinctive structure, very easy to find in the brain. This is a coronal cross-section of an adult rodent brain, so it's sectioned in this angle. And this is the part of the brain that's thought to be in part responsible for the formation and the retention of memories. And it's been shown through a number of studies that if you kill adult neurogenesis, if you inhibit it, it inhibits the formation of new memories. We're not exactly sure why you would have to have adult neurogenesis to form new memories, but it's severely implicated in that process. And this is just a higher mag view of these cells in the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus. And this cell here looks very much like a very early uh, astrocyte-like glial cell, which are the stem cells during embryogenesis. And we know now that the stem cells of embryogenesis give rise directly to the adult stem cells. So it's as if two little parts of the mammalian brain continue to have embryogenesis throughout life. And the estimates from the subventricular zone are that there are tens of thousands of new nerve cells born every single day throughout life. Now that's in, that's in rodents. I have to for, forewarn you right now that's not necessarily in humans and we're working hard to understand how much of this process occurs in humans. It's probably a lot less than in animals, but it's probably stimulated by various kinds of brain injury. So this is a higher uh, sort of definition view of the, what, the area I study, which is a subventricular zone. And there are several different kinds of cells within this system. And these green cells are the cells that we think are the stem cells. And we've isolated these cells actually uh, in a variety of ways that ha and have shown that both in vivo, in the brain itself, and in vitro, in a cell culture dish, these cells behave like stem cells. They can give rise to a wide variety of different kinds of cells. Um, including three major classes of neurons that are found in the olfactory bulb. Now, this is the brain viewed, in a, again, in a coronal cross-section cut at this angle, and this is what's called a sagittal section, wherein the brain has been cut in this angle. So you're viewing it from the side. And this shows that though the subventricular zone is a very thin layer of cells, it actually covers a rather large surface area. And this arrow here shows the direction of the migration of these cells towards the olfactory bulb. And this is one of uh, the favorite kinds of experiments that I do in the laboratory. I use a, a microscope called a two-photon time-lapse microscope to generate these movies. Because if tens of thousands of these cells are migrating to the olfactory bulb, then couldn't we ask a few of them to migrate towards injured parts of the brain? Couldn't we divert them towards injured parts of the brain? And that's actually what they do naturally. And we and many other people in the field are trying to understand how to control these cells to get them to the diseased and injured parts of the brain in an attempt at repair. This is a beautiful, beautiful slide that was generated by my colleague Alvarez Bula at UCSF. And Artur Alvarez Bula has probably contributed more than anybody to the field of, of adult subventricular zone neurogenesis. And he has shown in a recent set of studies, as have other people at UCL um, and, and in Toronto as well, that the adult subventricular zone actually generates a variety of different kinds of cells. So these are, are three major classes of cells that are found in this part of the brain called the olfactory bulb that I mentioned to you is a target for these cells. Now, 
one of the most interesting ones of these different kinds of cells is this cell here. So that's a tyrosine hydroxylase, or a Th positive cell. Tyrosine hydroxylase is a rate-limiting enzyme in the synthesis of dopamine. So Th positive cells are the cells that die in Parkinson's patients. And th they're not these cells. These are a different class of Th cells, but these cells also secrete dopamine. And one of the ideas that I've been uh, actively pursuing for a while is to try to increase the production of these cells and to divert them into the part of the brain where there's loss of dopamine and Parkinson's disease. So it's one example of how we could co-opt this adult neurogenic system for potential brain repair. This slide also has embedded within it a very interesting finding, which is that in the brain, these cells are probably not behaving like multipotent stem cells. We can take them out and we can expose them to factors in a dish and show that in a dish they satisfy the self-renewal and multipotent criteria. But these studies, as well as some earlier stuff from my lab when I was in Chicago, I was at Northwestern until four years ago, we showed that probably the large majority of these cells in the adult brain are more what are called committed progenitor cells. They've essentially made one of those decisions of which route they're going down. And they probably know that they're going to become one type of a neuron or another. So that's fine, that's okay, we know that now, and now we know what kind of cell we have to deal with and what sort of rational molecular choices we have to play with in terms of trying to induce these cells to become multipotent as they are in vitro. Okay, so this is just a little bit of a, a, an experimental approach slide. This is our, our two-photon microscope, and the, the essential thing to remember about this microscope is that it's a very non-invasive, gentle way of looking at live tissues. So you can sample live slices, living slices, of, of a mouse's brain or a rat's brain or a zebrafish's brain or, or a C. elegans brain and not damage it when you're viewing it for a long period of time. Previous microscopes actually cause what are called excitatory or, or, or free radical damage. So they caused uh, cell death within the system, and you could only make short movies uh, of, of a relatively small volume of tissue. This has expanded our capacity to view these cells in their dynamic processes of division and migration for a long period of time. And for those of you who read physics, it's based on the principle that photons in the far red spectrum actually travel through tissue much farther, but they're also energetically weaker than photons that are in, in higher or shorter wavelength uh, spectra, such as blue photons. And therefore, you have to have either two photons of light or multiple photons of light, it's also called multi-photon microscopy, arriving at your fluorochrome exactly at the same time to have enough energy for an excitation emission event of your fluorochrome. So that's all to say it's a really great system to study neurogenesis and migration. <laughs> and these are the kinds of, of three-dimensional images um, that we generate. And I, I must say that I, since I've lived in England for four years, I have never once wanted it to be overcast or to be rainy. But today I was rather wishing it would be overcast because I've never given a talk in a room that's lit by ambient daylight. So some of the slides are a little bit washed out and I apologize for that. But anyway, this is sort of a three-dimensional view of these cells that are moving towards the olfactory bulb, and these red squiggles that you see here are actually blood vessels. And the, new, the stem cells and the new nerve cells actually really love the blood vessels. They really are informed by the blood vessels, and they like to move along the blood vessels. This is just more of the, the, the kinds of movies we generate, and it's just to show that there are really a wide variety of different kinds of motility patterns in the brain. This is, in, in a large sense, it's still terra incognita, and we're discovering, my laboratory is really discovering a lot of fundamental aspects of these migratory behaviors. And I've always reasoned that before we start adding genes and molecules and drugs, we have to understand the tissue. We have to understand the biology of the system that we're working with. Now, another major strand of research in my lab is trying to understand, again, as I've mentioned, how these cells respond to injury. And we've done a lot of work in traumatic brain injury, which is not, somehow weirdly, it's not a popular disease uh, or disease model to study. It's tremendously important because there's huge numbers of people with traumatic brain injuries. The U.S. Army now, of course, is more interested in it because of, of the, uh, the unfortunate um, scenarios in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. But anyway, we've, we've done a lot of work in TBI, and recently we've started to collaborate with Alistair Buchan, uh, who's the head of the Medical Sciences Division, on a model of stroke in mice. And this is actually what's called the Middle Cerebral Artery Occlusion, or MCAO model of ischemic stroke. 
And what we do is we specifically thread a very, very small monofilament into the vasculature of a, a little mouse and we block this part of the circulation. And you can see here that same circle of Willis that I showed you several slides ago. And you can see that this part of the brain is protected from this insult, but this part of the brain starts to die off as shown by this fluorescent green stain here. And this is the analogous part. This is the mouse brain. This is the analogous part of the human brain showing a typical middle cerebral artery occlusion mediated stroke. So it's a very difficult model to generate. Um, but it's a very useful model because what we've discovered and others have discovered is that cells from the subventricular zone actually migrate out towards a stroke. And we're very interested in discovering the molecules that mediate that, and many of them have actually been discovered. So this is, these are some of the cells that are migrating along the blood vessels. In this picture, in this rotating movie, the green cells are actually the blood vessels and the red cells are the migrating neuroblasts. And it's just to emphasize this point that the blood vessels in, in part set up what's called a stem cell niche. So the stem cells, remember, they only occur in two parts of the brain, in the subventricular zone and, and in the dentate gyrus. Why is that? Well, it's very likely because those parts of the brain have very specific little molecules and very specific little proteins in them that aren't found anywhere else in the brain. And in fact, my friend Dennis Steinler calls it um, brain marrow because the bone marrow is also a very specialized niche for stem cell life. And the brain marrow of the subventricular zone essentially supports the existence of these cells and their various behaviors. And again, the blood vessels are in large part responsible for that. Now, we looked at the blood vessels in the subventricular zone after this model of stroke. And this is a normal animal um, where you can see these green blood vessels uh, and you can see their typical sort of width and their branching pattern. And when we looked at animals that had had a stroke two weeks beforehand, we noticed that there were a lot more of the blood vessels. They seemed to be thicker and they seemed to be more branching. So this is very interesting because it's suggesting that this model of stroke actually changes the stem cell niche within the subventricular zone. And it also suggests that these, this branching that you see here might help regulate the migration of the cells and might actually divert them from the normal migratory pathway. This article that was published by a fellow at the Buck Institute for Aging in California, David Greenberg and colleagues, is one of the most amazing papers because as far as I know, it's a single paper in the literature in the field that shows that if you reduce adult neurogenesis, stroke gets worse. So it's all well and good to say that these cells are migrating towards the injury, but do they really do any good? Well, there was indirect correlative evidence that they did, but you have to remove something to show that it's really useful. And these guys were able to specifically kill these new neurons with a, a, a genetic technique and show that stroke got worse when they inhibited adult neurogenesis. We don't think that the cells are replacing the cells that have died after stroke. They might to a certain extent, but I think that they're still relatively specified to give rise to those olfactory bulb interneurons, and we're trying to learn how to reprogram them to give rise to different kinds of cells. What we think they're doing in large part is releasing goodies. They're releasing cytokines and chemokines and growth factors, insulin, all sorts of things that the extant surviving neurons like and that help them survive better than if you don't have those things released. So we think that they're providing a nice environment for the, the damaged tissue to better survive in. So how are we doing? I think in the interest of time, I'm gonna skip through that. We're also working on a model of multiple sclerosis. And this, this slide is actually very important. This is to say that use of these endogenous stem cells and progenitor cells to treat brain injury will almost certainly, in my estimation and several other investigators' estimation, be better for glial-based diseases. Remember, glia are the support cells. They're the glue of the brain. They're oligodendrocytes and astrocytes. They're simpler cells, the nerve cells. They don't have the long connections. They don't have the tens of thousands of, connect, of, of synapses that nerve cells do. They're support cells. They're easier to replace. And to a certain extent, they're endogenously replaced throughout life at low but detectable levels. So Steve Goldman uh, essentially isolated some of these glial cell progenitor cells from human brains using a very clever fact sorting isolating technique and he injected these human glial progenitor stem-like cells into a mouse brain. Now this was a special mouse that was called a shiverer mouse that essentially had a demyelinating genetic lesion 
It was sort of a model of multiple sclerosis, where those, those oligodendrocytes, that myelin that's made by the oligodendrocytes, was lost. And amazingly, he showed that the human cells that he had labeled with his green fluorescent protein migrated throughout the brain, and they rescued the behavior of the mouse. And that means that they cured the mouse. The adult cells were able to enwrap the, oops, to enwrap the neurons and to actually increase their function back to the normal level. This is, in my mind, the single best proof of principle of the use of adult endogenous stem or progenitor cells in any kind of preclinical model of disease. And it's one of the sets of studies that make me believe that glial-based diseases are the best target for the use of stem cells in the brain. This is electron microscopy just to show that myelin actually was made. So what about our brains? I've, I've told you a, a little bit about zebrafish, I've told you a lot about the mouse and a little bit about the rat. Well, what about human subventricular zones? So this is a view from the side, a, a sagittal view of our ventricular system. We all know about the cerebrospinal fluid in the center of our brains. We know that we can tap into it through the, your, your spinal column. Well, in the brain, it's quite complicated in structure. And these two structures are called lateral ventricles. In my brain, they encompass, a, a, well, in everybody's brain, they encompass approximately this surface area. They form this C-shaped structure. And these subventricular zone cells essentially surround the entire lateral ventricles. So again, a very thin layer of tissue, but quite a large surface area. And we can extract these cells from human brains post-mortem or in the context of certain very specific surgeries where we come near it and we can sample a few, few of the cells and we can grow them in vitro. We can grow them in culture dishes and show that they behave like stem cells. So even though probably homeostatically normally you and I and all the rest of us exhibit very few, if even any, detectable neurogenesis, you can grow them in vitro, and that's tremendously exciting because it suggests that we might be able to use our own brain stem cells and change them in vitro and transplant them back in an autologous transplantation. So we know that they self-renew and they're, that they're multipotent, multipotential in, in, uh, in vitro, and we know from a number of studies, including some of our work, that after injury, the, the post-mortem human brain increases proliferation in the SVZ to a certain extent increases the, the production of nerve cells, and some of these my cells migrate towards the injury, but unfortunately very few survive and integrate properly. So that's one of the holy grails in the field, is to learn how to increase their survival and their integration. And this picture shows a, a paper in Science that came out suggesting that the human brain, as is shown here, actually has the same migratory route of cells going towards the olfactory bulbs. Okay, so. In the final section, I'd like to tell you a little bit about iPS cells and switch away from adult neurogenesis and tell you about this incredible set of, of techniques and findings that have revolutionized the way we think about stem cells and the use of stem cells for a variety of different purposes. So back to Waddington's epigenetic landscape, cells normally roll downhill and don't de-differentiate. Well, actually, I mentioned that Dolly the sheep proved that you can experimentally cause a reversal of this forward movement of embryogenesis. Well, iPS technology does the same. It essentially takes adult skin cells from humans or from animals or any kind of cell and introduces specific factors into these cells and causes them to essentially turn into embryonic stem cell-like cells. Now, here's a depiction of this where these adult cells, and again, skin biopsies have been the, the most commonly used, uh, type of cell are introduced to what are called reprogramming factors, and these are transcription factors, again, proteins that specifically regulate gene expression. And that causes these cells to appear, which then can go on to give progeny that give rise to the three major types of cells of the embryo, mesoderm, which gives rise to muscle, endoderm, which gives rise to gut, and ectoderm, which gives rise to skin and to nervous system tissue. So tremendously interesting stuff. And here are the molecules that are necessary for it. Now, unfortunately, this molecule, C-MYC, is actually an oncogene. So it's a, a, a protein that's been found to be associated with cancer. And one of the greatest fears of using stem cells in any kind of therapeutics is that you will induce cancer formation, because stem cells and cancer cells share several common features. And many people view cancer cells essentially as stem cells that have gone bad, pathological stem cells. And the use of C-MYC is actually very important to keep in mind with regards to that. 
Now, what was incredibly interesting about iPS cells is that it, it means that to a huge extent, we no longer will have to rely on using human embryonic stem cells. Now, I know that the, the views in this country are very different about that from my native country in the States, but essentially iPS technology means that we now all of a sudden have a huge source of human embryonic stem cell-like cells, and we don't have to use fertilized embryos that are left over in, in fertility clinics. It also means that we can make ES-like cells from our own cells. I could take some of my own skin cells and make iPS cells, and if I want to use them for transplantation therapeutics, I don't have to worry about my immune system rejecting it. This is a big issue in transplantation. And it also essentially means that you have an unlimited and continuous supply of these cells. It's quite difficult to get human embryonic stem cells. Um, it's logistically and, and, and legally and, and ethically uh, fraught with a lot of problems. Now, uh, the generation of iPS cells has actually been replicated in multiple labs and across multiple species. That's a good thing. It's a very tried and true technique. It's incredible to me that the, the Shinya Yamanaka, who many people will think will get the Nobel laureate for this, started this just a handful of years ago. Um, it was, it's really just within the past five years that this technology has come around. And I've mentioned that, and I've mentioned that. And what's extremely interesting is that you can generate these cells not just from normal human beings, but from uh, poor human beings who have various afflictions. Parkinson's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, um, schizophrenia now, and so you can generate cells from uh, uh, humans with disease and then not just use the cells for transplantation therapeutics, but use those cells in a dish to understand how the cells are dying or how they're pathological and how they're different from healthy cells. So e probably even more than the use of these cells for therapeutics in terms of transplantation, they'll be useful for discovery of the mechanisms of disease. And my colleague Richard Wade Martins here in the Department of Physiology has actually already made dopaminergic neurons from Parkinsonian patients to try to understand how these cells die, because we don't know what kills Parkinsonian dopamine neurons. The other thing that they'll be extremely useful for is drug screening. We now will have an essentially unlimited supply of various types of human cells that we can screen for drug toxicity or drug efficacy in various um, models of disease or uh, for various questions. So I think IPS technology really holds a huge amount of promise. So this is a movie that was taken from a colleague's work where it shows IPS cells that have been turned into cardiac tissue. So these are, are, are beating heart cells that are in a dish. And this is from a diseased individual who has a mutation in an ion channel that causes his heart to beat slowly. So I want you to, to I would like to ask you to pay attention to just the, the rapidity with uh, which this, these, this sheet of cells in a dish is beating. And these things are electrodes that are essentially looking at the, the electrical current generated by those cells. Now this is uh, cardiac tissue from a normal human being, and you can see that the beating is a lot slower. So this movie is a beautiful example of how you can study disease in a dish and how the slowness of the beating in that person's heart was replicated after their adult skin cells were turned into embryonic stem cell-like cells and then redifferentiated into a cardiac cell. Now, what about the brain? Well, Hans Scholler in Germany has shown that one single factor is sufficient to reprogram and to make iPS cells from human brain cells. I think that he's primarily sampling subventricular zone cells, but that's an experiment that we still need to do. Very, very interestingly, a twist to the whole idea of reprogramming has, has come around in the past year. So this paper was published about a year and a half ago from the Wernig Lab at Stanford University, and he showed that this other scenario of transdifferentiation was possible. By direct conversion of fibroblasts, essentially dermal cells, into functional neurons via these defined factors. I didn't believe in it when it first came out. I thought this is just another example of poor science and nobody will be able to replicate it. This summer and this past spring, three more papers have come out showing exactly the same thing. And fascinatingly, three out of the four factors that are necessary to get this done exist in the subventricular zone normally. So this direct conversion, direct generation of neurons will actually completely bypass the need for stem cells. We won't need stem cells to make neurons. If this continues to be as exciting as it's been in the past year and a half or so, we'll probably all be directly converting fibroblasts for our experiments and for our therapies. Now, any, any uh, technique and any approach and any paper um, has inherent problems with it. And there are some dangers and inherent problems with iPS cells. 
One of the, the problems is that the majority of uh, uh, people use retroviral vectors or retroviruses to introduce these transcription factors into the cells. And the retroviruses unfortunately integrate into the host cell's genome, into the DNA. They pop themselves into the DNA of the, of the cell that you're studying. And that can cause mutations. If it randomly pops into the DNA that encodes for an important molecule, then you may mess up that molecule. You may damage the molecule. And that's one of the reasons that retroviruses are now being uh, switched to, to various other kinds of technologies, genetic technologies, to, like piggyback technology, that don't have this problem of mutagenesis. I mentioned the problem that iPS cells can also generate tumors, and that's something that people are very interested in uh, avoiding, of course, but they're also interested in terms of using it as a model for tumorogenesis. And I'll skip through that. And, and just in the final few minutes, we're almost done here, I wanted to point out some of the challenges in using the stem cells that I've talked about, but, but stem cells in general for therapy. Uh, and, and one of the big problems is to grow large numbers reproducibly. It's not enough to have a one-off experiment where you've shown that you've gotten some neurons in a dish. You really have to do this in a robust and reproducible way. You also, as we've mentioned several times, have to differentiate them into specific cell types and the right type of cell. If you put the wrong type of cell into the brain, it's not going to incorporate appropriately and it won't have a functional benefit. You have to grow them, very importantly, in the absence of pathogens in animal cells. So, for example, people who donate cells for generating iPS cells, they can't be HIV positive. That's not a good thing. And so it means that you really have to screen patients and you really have to screen your cells for the presence of any kind of, of pathogen uh, or animal cells, which we use. We grow human cells in, in the presence of animal cells because these cells essentially are feeder cells. They provide nutrients for the human cells. We've talked about tumor formations. And this is a huge hurdle in terms of using stem cells for therapies. There are incredibly complicated and stringent governmental regulatory requirements in every country that I know about. And that's a good thing, actually, because it's, you know, the last thing we want to do is to induce tumors or to, or to do harm in trying to do good for these patients. Finally, people who are in, uh, in, in this whole concept of translational uh, biomedical research speak a lot about the valley of death. So there are two camps in biomedical research. There are people like myself who are bench scientists who study fundamental molecular mechanisms and cell processes in a laboratory. And then there are clinicians who try to use the drugs and the molecules and the cells that we've discovered to try to benefit and to try to generate therapies. In between, there's a huge amount of misunderstanding, a huge amount of lack of monetary support, and a huge amount of lack of organization. And that simplifies how bad it is. <laughs> it's really terrible, and it means that there's a disconnect between the bench scientists and the clinicians. And the NIH in the States, and the Wellcome Trust, and the MRC, and pretty much everybody who thinks about this thinks that this is, this valley of death is one of the main things that we have to target and sort out. But currently it still exists, and we're, we're trying hard to uh, walk through the valley of death. This is something that I actually um, sent in your direction. This is a very interesting article talking about the ins and outs of uh, stem cell uh, uh, therapies around the world. There are many stem cell trials, although I hesitate to use that term, which are not properly controlled. And one has to be aware, be aware what the general ideas are behind the proper controls uh, of these stem cell trials. And this paper actually beautifully describes the kinds of questions patients should ask of themselves and of their doctors if they're ever contemplating stem cell therapies. I really think it sets the rubric for how we should all be thinking about this for the next several decades. And this is a beautiful, beautiful review by Sally Temple, who recently got the MacArthur Genius Award. She's originally uh, also from Cambridge. Um, <laughs> but she's, she's a wonderful scientist working now in New York State. And uh, she makes several points in this, including this issue of the valley of death. And I put this up just to alert you to this, that if you're interested in reading more about these kinds of things, this is a great review article. And embedded within her review article, she has loads and loads and loads of websites and further information that you can go to. This is a table from her article that shows a, a, a description of um, some of the, the types of stem cell therapies that are actually being carried out now in clinical trials. 
And the two most famous ones are a spinal cord injury trial being carried out by Geron Corporation in California, and the other one is a stroke clinical therapy trial being carried out here in the UK. And the first person to have stem cells injected into his brain in this trial was a man in Glasgow about four or five months ago. So we're all very excited to see how that will turn out. Okay, so just in conclusion, I've tried to tell you that stem cells are, are building blocks of embryogenesis and tissue maintenance. They're fantastically interesting to study, uh, even apart from any interest you might have in using them for therapy. They are characterized by these two fundamental cardinal behaviors of self-renewal and multipotency. I've shown you that adult neurogenesis contributes to brain repair, and actually, I've also tried to impart this idea that the system of adult neurogenesis is just a great biological system to study fundamental questions surrounding how these cells work. And I've alluded to the idea that it might be very difficult to replace a very complicated, huge number of neurons, of nerve cells that are found in our brain, and that the support cells, the glial cells, might be a better target for stem cell therapy. I've told you a little bit about iPS cells and reprogramming and how iPS cells actually take adult differentiated cells backwards to an embryonic stem cell-like state. And I've tried to uh, just a little bit bring across this idea that with carefully controlled clinical trials, we will hopefully uh, properly test how stem cells could be used for, for therapies. Okay, so I would just like to thank the people who do the work. This is my laboratory on one of our retreats. This is uh, the, the, the coast of, of Devon. And here we are last Christmas after our Christmas party. Um, so these guys are great, and I'd really like to thank them for all the hard work. And I'd really like to thank the University of Oxford for having, having given me this job and this wonderful opportunity <laughs> to be here. It's really um, the thrill of my life, and I hope to stay. And I really also would like to uh, thank St. Anne's College. It's a really, really wonderfully friendly and forward-looking college, and I have made a lot of friends there, and I, I really enjoy it there. Uh, I'd like to thank especially the alumni office, not just for allowing me to talk here, but for everything that they do with the alumni and for organizing this weekend. You guys do a great job, so congratulations to the alumni office. And last, but definitely not least, I would like to thank the alumni. So thanks for coming. Thanks for your interest in Oxford. It's really important to keep interest in the university going. We're going through some changes, hopefully not too many changes, and I appreciate your attention. So I've been told that we have to exit by 5.15, but I think, Helen, maybe, maybe 10 minutes of questions or so, if anybody has anything. N no pressure, just if there's any interest in anything. Yes? Ah, that's a very interesting question. One of the most fascinating things to have come out of the, the adult neurogenesis literature is that exercise actually helps. So people have shown that if you allow animals to exercise at free will, their adult neurogenic system actually maintains itself better and you have more proliferation and more survival of the cells. So I went out for a jog after I read that paper. <laughs> I've been exercising ever since. Physical exercise. Physical exercise, and there's, there's, a, there's a fellow who has shown that physical exercise causes the release of a molecule called fibroblast growth factor, and FGF is one of the key molecules in maintaining adult stem cells. Not quite sure if FGF gets into the brain, but it actually might because the, the vasculature that I kept alluding to in, in the subventricular zone is somewhat leaky. There are three or four parts of the brain where the, the blood vessels are a little bit leaky and they allow substances to go through more readily. And the SCZ now turns out to be one of those areas. So FGF, might, through exercise, might very well get in there. Yes. Yeah, well, that's, that's actually a very interesting and a very good and a very difficult question. So when adult neurogenesis was sort of rediscovered about 20 years ago, everybody wondered why in those two parts of the brain. Why should the hippocampus and the olfactory bulb support adult neurogenesis? And I must say that as I stand here today, I and 
certainly I and probably the field don't know the answer to that question. It's not clear. People do hand-waving exercises and they say, well, it's, the new cells help with new memory formations. But we've known for dozens and dozens of years that new synapses can subserve new memory formations. So, and and you, you can grow little parts of the cells called spines on dendrites, and that's correlated with new memory formation. So it's really not entirely clear why you should have newborn neurons uh, subserve some of these functions. And, and why should you have cells born in the lateral ventricle and then migrating towards the olfactory bulb? Why aren't they born in situ in the olfactory bulb as well? It's not clear. One of my ideas is that evolutionarily, it's, it's not just the things that are good for us that are maintained throughout evolution, but sometimes it's also the things that do no harm. It's, if, if it didn't sort of cause you know, long-standing damage to the evolution of that organism, that it could have persisted. And as I mentioned, other organisms from which we've evolved do maintain adult neurogenesis at quite a robust level. And it could be that, that our brains can support just this amount and it doesn't really do any harm. So that's not a very satisfying answer, but it's, it's one of the ideas. Yes? Yes. And it was almost random which way it went. Yes. Um, presumably the brain has some way of knowing whether it wants a skin cell or a, or a, um, a neural state cell, whatever it is, or a blood cell. Is there some part of the brain that kind of controls which way the stem cell goes? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, I mentioned several times that there are classes of molecules called transcription factors which are within the cell that help the cell make these decisions. But that's just the, the part of the story. There are also extrinsic molecules called signaling molecules that are made by the tissue within which the stem cell resides, that are made within the niche of the stem cells. And those signaling molecules, like FGF actually is one of them, it's a classic one, fibroblast growth factor is made by the local tissue. And that can instruct the cell to go down one direction versus the other. So it's really an interplay between these extrinsic factors and these intrinsic factors. Now another reason I, I really like your question is that there are fields of tissue within the brain that, are, that become quite specialized quite early on. And the demarcations between those fields sometimes are exquisitely tight and you have very sharp boundaries that are set up by the presence or the absence of different kinds of molecules on one or the other side of the boundary. And those differences will help the stem cells make their decisions. Back there. People are very, very interested in that general question. There's no systematic approach to pull all the data together and to do really a big meta-analysis across species, but it's tremendously important because amphibia and reptiles and, and C. elegans and zebrafish have such plastic stem cells, and we have the genomes of most of these organisms. It's, it's become so inexpensive to sequence DNA that it's, it's going to be viable soon for all of us to sequence our own genomes so we know exactly what DNA uh, stretches sequences we have. Because it's gotten so inexpensive, a lot of these organisms' genomes have been sequenced, and we are starting to look through them and try to understand what is it about OCT4 that's different in a C. elegans versus a human that would potentially make a C. elegans stem cell more stem-like. So the answer is it's, it's a hugely important question. It's, it's an even larger task, and we're just starting to scratch the surface. I can't emphasize enough how much of a, a, a huge, gigantic, exponential leap forward biomedical research has taken in the past 50 years. I mean, we're, we're really discovering things that had not even been thought about even five years ago or 10 years ago. It's an incredibly exciting time, but it also means that the knowledge bubble has expanded exponentially, and it's really hard to keep up with it. And again, I can't emphasize how expensive it is. <laughs> it's, it's, re it's really, really expensive, and that's gotten bad these days. It's, been, it's, it's harder and harder to, to, to fund it.
But yeah, it's a great question. Yes? Yeah, I really appreciate that question, actually, because I got into neurosciences originally because I was interested in mental illness, because I just reasoned that it's, it's the most devastating thing that could happen to a human being. Um, so one of the ideas behind hippocampal neurogenesis is that these newborn neurons are responsible for the pharmacotherapy of depression. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that when people used animal models of depression and they inhibited the adult neurogenesis, in that, as in that other stroke experiment I mentioned, they show that when they dampened down adult neurogenesis, the antidepressants didn't work anymore in the animal models. You can't do this experiment in humans. It's just not ethical. Um, and so that's very interesting, though, because it suggests that the newborn neurons somehow are integrating into brain circuitries that are responsible for depression. Then everybody thought, oh, well, that's, that's great, but that's just the pharmacotherapy. What about the actual etiology of the disease? Do you have to have adult more adult neurogenesis to avoid depression? And interestingly enough, actually, exercise is a great way to, to sort of limit uh, depression. Uh, anyway, about two weeks ago, Heather Cameron at the NIH published a paper in Nature wherein she's saying that if you abolish adult neurogenesis in the hippocampal dentate gyrus, you actually exacerbate animal mo models and, and aspects of depression. So now we're thinking, the field is thinking, perhaps it actually is involved in uh, the emergence of these depressive symptoms. Watch that space, it's very interesting. In terms of schizophrenia, I've had an idea for a number of years that, that neurogenesis goes awry in some diseases of the brain, and newborn neurons arise, and they migrate out, and they, they set up shop ectopically, and they do damage. So anytime you have a biological process, you will also have a pathological version of that biological process. It's just an unfortunate truth. And so people have said, well, great, adult neurogenesis is very interesting, and it might be therapeutically useful, but how could it go wrong and actually turn into a bad thing? Cancers might arise from the adult neurogenic niches. Glioblastomas actually might arise from the adult neurogenic niches. And I've hypothesized that per perhaps in schizophrenia there's altered neurogenesis. And there's one paper that shows in the dentate gyrus there's actually a reduction in neurogenesis. And my laboratory is looking quite actively at adult neurogenesis in postmortem sections from schizophrenics. And Rusty Gage, uh, Fred Gage, uh, whose nickname is Rusty in California, has made IPS cells from schizophrenics. And he showed that when he makes neurons from those IPS cells, they have abnormal synaptic connectivity. So it's a beautiful, beautiful paper and a proof of principle that you can use that technology to study the mechanism of, of schizophrenia. So thank you very much for your attention. Somebody's tapping their watch in the back. So have a good rest of the afternoon. Thank you.